KZSU Stanford. I'm Mark Molino. This is the Henry George Program, a show about housing, politics, economics, etc., etc. Today, the program, we are taking a call from Diego Aguilar, Conobal, formerly a Stanford student, now in the East Bay, and he'll talk about this week's election, what it's been about housing, talk about it a bit more. Let's just have him on. Hi, uh, Diego. I uh, used to DJ at KZSU, and now I live in Berkeley. Yeah, so, okay, so, yeah, so uh, a longtime KZSU listener may recognize the voice of, of uh, DJ Lestragonian, now in the East Bay, and now... Uh, uh, Blast now, from the past. Now, now uh, would you call yourself a housing wonk or just a housing advocate? Uh... I've metamorphosed from the latter into the former. Nice. Like a caterpillar growing into a beautiful wonk butterfly. In- incredible. Uh, so, okay. <laughs> the ele- election, election this Tuesday, uh, do you want to focus on the good or the bad? Uh, it, it's all neutral. It's all, it's, <laughs> that's, that's... You know, election, elections speak the will of the voters. Elections are always a winner um, because, yeah, it, it, it is always a success when an election happens, and let's not forget that. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, you know, we're talking about the liberal Bay Area, so we're not dealing with gerrymandering or... We had or no... We had no... Uh, rampant voter suppression. No open uh, open Nazis were running on any of the tickets uh, in the Bay Area, and none of them won, so that's all. Uh, well, the Congress member in, like... Western Contra Costa. Okay, if you call it, okay, so I spoke too soon. There was, a, there was there sorry. Was, I mean, not Congress, not Congress member, Congress candidate. Sure, running against uh, Eric Solnier. Yeah, well, okay, so no Nazis won at least. That's always a good start. Yeah, right, right. Uh, so uh, yeah, but uh, why don't you talk about yeah? Uh, how, how what was on? Uh, well, what was what was Berkeley looking like? So I just got off the phone uh, with my friend and neighbor. Rashi Kisarwani, who won the District 1 election seat, which was uh, an open seat after longtime council member Linda Mayo retired. She won with about 46% of the vote after rank choice. And, um, and, and, and she I'm ran old. a very... Sorry, what were you saying? Oh, I'm just saying rank choice. All, always, always exciting. Like down here in uh, Santa Clara County, we're very jealous of you in the East Bay and San Francisco who, who have that going on. Oh, yeah. I mean, you guys could just run a ballot measure and get it going. We could. If you want. We could. Uh, but, yeah, so uh, so Rashi, what's she, what's she going to bring? I mean, how close is the Berkeley Council to being, like, you know, explicitly, you know, kind of really... In, in you know endorsing growth instead of the kind of uh, hippie suburbanite mentality. Yeah, so I'd say uh, it, it's overwhelmingly, you know, people are kind of underplaying how much it's changed. Um, I think overwhelmingly now low density and pro public transit, um, and essentially anti sprawl is the way I like to. That's always um, good. Yeah. I think we have. Sorry. Well, are you underwater or something? You got some weird, uh, some weird connection. Um, you know, let me try. Um, is this any better? Yeah, it sounds it sounds a million bucks. Okay. Yeah. Um, sorry. Somehow, speakerphone is amazing, and, and the actual mic on my phone is terrible. Sure. Um, I mean, is um, it, is it your your mayor? I think people now recognize that if Berkeley doesn't build an apartment, 
then Manteca is getting an acre of farmland paved over, and the latter is infinitely worse for the environment. And it's interesting, too, because, I mean, much like Stanford, Berkeley is, you know, it's a famous college campus, and unlike Stanford, it doesn't house, you know, a large portion of its students, uh, and they have to live in Berkeley, and there's actually, you know, hostility right. from the from the Berkeley r- residents towards these students. Right. Uh, I think more significant is that in the district that covers the Berkeley campus, uh, we elected the youngest council member ever, uh, Rigel Robinson. He's 22 years old. He's a former aide to the outgoing council member, Chris Worthington. Um, and he unambiguously supports more density. Well, not just all around the city, but especially around the campus. Um, and, you know, is, is active in a new group that's starting called More Student Housing Now. Is he himself a uh, Berkeley student uh, previously? Uh, recently graduated. Very, uh, very interesting. Yeah. I mean, yeah. So, um, you know, the, the, the politics of the UC Berkeley itself are, are very different. They have all sorts of you know, bureaucracy floods and uh, funding issues, and but there are underutilized. Um, plots of land um, around Oxford on one side of the campus and then, you know, we won't even touch the country people's park on the other side. But um, essentially, UC Berkeley is in a prime position to start developing a lot of land that it has jurisdiction over into, uh, uh, you know, frankly, we needed about 10,000 new units of student housing. Um, and, And young people and students are are getting organized to demand that not not just from the city but from the university. So with, with the new with the new council next year, what's what's the breakdown on kind of housing? How many seats are there, and how many kind of break each way? Uh, right. So um, the ringleader of um, uh, feudal nimbyism in Berkeley is a council member, Sophie Hahn. Sure. And she's just kind of an all around awful person. Um, she's, you know, a, a trust fund kid. She owns like vineyards in France and like pontificates about income inequality while being filthy bitch. Um, she and Kate Harrison, who remain on the council, uh, love to kind of uh, wave their hands about views and uh, trees and uh, all these things that are luxuries for single family homeowners while people are sleeping under bridges or commuting from Tracy or what have you. Do, do they explicate like what they believe should happen with, uh, with students that are currently having trouble finding housing? Um, very, very vaguely and, and, and incoherently, if at all. Yeah. Um, but so importantly, um, you know, they're allies of the uh, newly elected mayor. Sorry. I mean, as of two years ago, newly elected mayor, uh, Jesse Arigin. Who is a young guy, um, young guy and a renter. Yeah, he's, he's 33. Yeah, relatively 34 young. 34 now, maybe. But, I mean, it's, it's interesting um, that he's a, he's a renter, but he largely is seen as representing homeowners' interests. That's right. Um, and so uh, he, he just kind of picked the horse in his race and, and the, the, the kind of white, uh, smarmy, uh, sanctimonious hippie coalition brought him to power and and you know he 
he owed them favors, which involved blocking housing. Mm. But now that he's the mayor and he's responsible for the city's budget, he realizes that, you know, it's this growing city uh, with growing pension obligations and, and, and deferred maintenance for a lot of infrastructure. And hey, it turns out one of the best way to address that is um, to grow the tax base by adding housing and people. Yeah, you have to, I mean, that's the thing with building a tax base, you have to build it densely to make it tax revenue positive because of Prop 13. But that's you, right. You can still, if you make it dense enough, it will pencil out. Uh, is, yeah. Uh, is, like, are pension obligations still growing? I mean, I guess, I mean, I'm hearing a lot of places that they're, you know, it's it, they're mostly paying down old obligations because, like, right now, it seems like austerity measures towards public employees is what they're doing in the moment to live down old pension, uh, old pension promises. But I mean, I don't want to get into weeds with that. But maybe I shouldn't even break. That yeah. Up. Well, I mean, so so all that aside, uh, my point is that we only have really three hardcore um, status quo protectionist members of the city council. Um, and we have a couple who are, who are kind of slippery or have different priorities. Um, uh, Susan Wengraff represents the Hills and, you know, people who live in the Hills that frankly should be depopulated and have all their eucalyptus trees raised. Uh, and I mean depopulated in the sense that like people shouldn't live in those hills. They should live in, in apartments near transit. But, um, you know, she's generally concerned about about parking because everyone in her district has to drive, which you know it is what it is. I mean that that is, um, that is always the weird thing about the like the ostensible environmentalist is saying you know there should be as many trees as possible and there should be a ranch home in the middle of those trees. It's it's weird how they can always justify like how there should be one home on this acre instead of zero when zero makes a lot more sense. Yeah, I mean, you know, you can make all this argument about how it dates back to, like, John Muir and, and Teddy Roosevelt kind of, quote-unquote, discovering nature and deciding that, like, the white man can colonize the state of nature yeah, and, and that they can bring all the amenities of, of urban living with them and kind of make it happen for themselves. Nature exists for the birds. Um, yeah, right. So I think we really have a lot of cultural undoing and relearning to do around this kind of atomized idea of the individual living their chosen lifestyle in whatever environment they want, regardless of whether it makes sense for the sustainability of that environment. Yeah, I mean, that, that's the hippie mindset, too. If you want to be around nature, it means you drive your microbus into the into nature, you park by a river, and then you're in nature, when really you're just polluting nature. It's like, it's just a thoughtless. Right. And so to, to illustrate that, um, you know, Kate Harrison, who, who won re-election by about 3%, um, she had co-introduced a piece of legislation that uh, essentially would require a certain quota of trees for every individual plot of land, uh, for any use permit you request, and and you know, I'm sure as a lot of people can relate, um, you need a use permit for literally any significant alteration to your property directly. So like anything from like a hot tub to building a new deck, rebuilding the stairs to moving a window. 
Um, I know a guy who it took him a year to get a permit to move a window. Um, and if that legislation would have required, like, if you didn't have a certain amount of trees on your plot, you'd have to plant new trees before getting a permit for, say, like, you know, fixing your foundation. Yeah. So in, in this, um, does this, and this obligation, does it like fall heavier on, on more dense, you know, apartments or is it actually possible to get the tree quota, uh, you know, within, within the urban core? Well, no, I mean, it wasn't even introduced. Um, it, you know, the council didn't even debate it because it was so stupid. Oh, okay. It was just, it was just kind of a vanity proposal. It, yeah, it was, it was, flo- it was kind of floated as a, it, uh, as a proposal that never materialized. Uh, but no. um, the point is that there, there's only a few, there's only a core few um, wing nuts on the council who would earnestly do this sort of thing. Um, but um, council member Lori Drossi was reelected by a significant margin. Um, and she has really been the most uh, evidence-based policymaker on the council. And, you know, all the evidence shows that uh, a growing job center and education hub like Berkeley needs to be dense and uh, reject car-based planning as much as possible. Yeah, I mean, Jesse Aryegan, I'm not sure if it's his name right, but uh, yeah, just I I last saw him like a week or two ago with this big uh, publicity push about Berkeley is very proud of its newest parking garage. It's the parking garage of the future. Um, yeah, I mean that thing is really stupid. <laughs> uh, it's seven hundred space new parking garage a block from downtown. Um, they didn't even do all the bike parking they promised. Really? Um, and for for a while, it was the tallest structure under construction in Berkeley. Yeah. Uh, yeah, Lori, Lori's seat. Uh, she, I, I, it sounds like it's it's a win for for the you know housing side. Although it's worth mentioning that one of the runners up was also a housing advocate uh, and also a very interesting uh, and talented person, Alfred Twu. If you want to see his illustrations about housing, he does a great job. You know, uh, making these really beautiful illustrations. Uh, I just yeah, Alfred ran a, a really positive campaign around some really uh, both concrete and idealistic ideas which is, uh, you know, really a space only someone like Alfred can carve out. Uh, Alfred was all about, um, you know, missing middle density, as they call it, um, but also, um, like, different, more sustainable ways of living, like co-op living, um, accessory dwelling units. Um, I, I mean, it's really kind of embraced the, uh, the, the kind of cutesy, twee character of Berkeley, but with also like a, a scientific approach to environmental sustainability, and and he and yeah, Alfred is a cartoonist for my newspaper, The Bay City Beacon, in San Francisco, which you can talk about later. Um, but yeah, uh, Alfred's really great, and we're we're very excited to have him involved in politics. Yeah, and I mean, it's that is interesting. I mean, uh, yeah, just as far as like he himself is a non-student who lives in a co-op, and there's only a few of these even open now, but. They offer a very non-normative uh, way of living that is not open to a lot of people. It used to be open uh, in the past, and it's been made illegal. Uh, it's very interesting that it's yeah. And Alfred is a proponent too of the shared kitchen spaces. Sure. Which um, you know, having seen the co-ops at Stanford, I could not be more against. But you know, if people want it, they can definitely have it available. 
Uh, okay, so so uh, so Lori's one seat. How how many total seats are on the Berkeley City Council? Uh, eight, and the mayor is effectively a council member at large. Okay. Um. So um, so there's so uh, I I think Berkeley is going to see kind of a a a, a more um, fact based approach to its future. Um. And and Rashi is certainly an important step in that direction. Her district covers the North Berkeley Bart parking lot, and I emphasize the parking lot because that's all that's around it for about a quarter mile. Yeah, and uh, around that, you know, the single family homes, and this is a several billion dollar infrastructure investment from the region. Um, and you know, it really only serves this very um, kind of idyllic old timey neighborhood um, with not a, not a lot of retail nearby um, not, not a lot of things to do nearby like some tennis courts and the dog park I mean d- down here in, um, in the South Bay I mean w- we would kill to have a BART stop and it's just so frustrating that Berkeley is a stop and it's not surrounded by the downtown core it's so, in the North Berkeley hub it's surrounded by this gigantic parking lot and just suburban sprawl all around it's and uh yeah i mean and the the state the state uh the state bill that allows bart to build on its land is going to change all this right yeah so assembly bill 2923 um you know people who didn't like it framed it as like a state takeover of local land use but all it does is essentially um it it you know bart has these transit-oriented development goals they're essentially meant to make riderships more sustainable and, you know, make better, better economic use of its land around, uh, around the station. You know, they own all these parts of land around the stations. And some of them, you know, they're costing more money to maintain than it brings in in riders. Yeah. Um, so it gives cities two years to bring their zoning code up into compliance with our Plans. Um, and, you know, Berkeley was really kind of resistant to that. Um, but Rocky was the only candidate who was very outspoken about supporting more density around that part station. And she won, you know, um, pretty unambiguously as a front runner. Um, so I think that, that we're seeing a big sea change in, in how Berkeley wants to get around and how it wants to live together um, and, and what it wants it to look like in the future so yeah i mean so that's gonna be a two-year process to figure out what the update to the zoning code is to enable uh bart to do its thing um i would assume so yeah oh so sorry so after those two years if a city does not come into compliance bart gets to rezone its own land oh okay well that's, yeah that's, so that's, people are not into that part yeah and i mean it's it sounds i mean it's North Berkeley was a poster child for this, but I imagine some other BART stations, especially in the East Bay, who have suburban flavor to its BART stations, are going to be affected. Yeah, and so I mean, it's important to underscore. You know, people weren't stupid when they were planning BART originally. Like it, it was originally intended to be surrounded by all these apartments and and retail and and not just this big parking lot. But uh, the problem was that it was also planned to go above ground. Um, and so, uh, with his last Republican mayor, uh, Berkeley actually raised the big bond measure on itself 
in order to cover the cost of, uh, of putting BART underground all throughout Berkeley. And so the land that uh, BART had acquired to kind of cut from North Berkeley to downtown um, is now uh, the Ohlone Parkway. Hmm. So the city kind of took that land back and made a park. But no other plan uh, around what to do with that land kind of materialized. So it was just the park and parking. So, um, you know, it's kind of a relic of this kind of 60s environmentalism where uh, or the status quo was seen as kind of immaculate. Um, and, and if change was bad, then it had to be resisted wholesale rather than saying, like, okay, how can things change sustainably? Um, and that's really the paradigm shift we're seeing in environmentalism, uh, both here in Berkeley and I think around the Bay Area. And I've quoted this before, but uh, I I think it's a fast. I was I was uh, I found this in a San Rafael newspaper from the '60s, and the British economist Barbara Ward came down as BART was being built, and said, "This is a massive investment. This is billions investment, and if you don't actually you know create value capture to pay for itself, you know on the lands right around the BART stations." It's just going to benefit local landowners, and you're going to basically be subsidizing them forever when you pay for your BART instead of having a sustainable system in which it captures its own value and pays for itself. And, you know, look ahead, and BART has largely failed to do that. They've largely failed to capture the value, and instead, in a place in North, North Berkeley, yeah, they're subsidizing uh, all these homeowners, and it's nice to see them, you know, pushing back a bit. Yeah, and I mean, I, I I wouldn't frame it necessarily as BART's fault because it's set up as this regional transit agency where really it goes through all these jurisdictions that can do whatever they want and, and BART can't stop them. Oh, no, I, I'm not saying so BART is, should be pointed. It's it's more the fact that the system was designed that BART is, is systemically underpowered to represent its own interests. Right. Here. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Uh, so, um, you know, we have all this regional infrastructure and I think we're finally starting to talk about it as a region and how to make it work together as a region. Because if everyone decides how to get to use their piece of the pie on their own, then, you know, we get the situation we're in. It is over there though, at least in your case, BART already has a nice chunk of land. If you're talking about the South Bay, Santa Clara County, it's largely the case that BART to expand would need to you know acquire more rights of way and boy this is the hardest thing in the world this is nightmare land um i i believe it would also need some new legislation passed to essentially give it any like literally any authority in the county because um currently the charter is under uh it, it can only actually it can only enforce fair inspection for example in uh, San Francisco, Contra Costa, and Alameda counties. So, um, hot tip, you can jump the fair gate anywhere in San Mateo County, and uh, BART is not allowed to stick top from you because it, it doesn't have jurisdiction in San Mateo County, and San Mateo County does not pay a penny in taxes towards BART. Interesting. <laughs> that's, that's a weird wrinkle. Uh, so... I mean, okay, so so to to recap here, it sounds like you know now the Berkeley City Council is largely uh, a majority of of pro housing voices and will uh, work ahead. So that's it's it's been a pr- it's been a pretty 
uh, good yeah good news in in Berkeley. I want to talk more. And about we uh, this part of the East Bay elected a new assembly member, Bucky Wick, who has been vocally unambiguously pro housing and pro transit, and 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 she defeated an opponent by by double digits, who was kind of this Bernie Krat rabble rouser who. Um, you know, really personified the worst of that movement in, in terms of being kind of both arrogant and incurious about the details and just, just saying social housing, social housing, I'll do social housing. I don't like developers. Uh, the state will build housing, people will the profits, but not really, you know, addressing the details. Uh, and so Javanka Beckel, who uh, was defeated by 12 to 13% at the end of the day, um, on the Richmond City Council, she she had uh, abstained on 100% affordable housing. The uh, one particular project um, where she was just kind of missed and surprised that um, that uh, that low-income housing in Richmond was defined by the uh, area median income in Contra Costa County. Sure, and that's something that is the that official you should know if you're talking about affordable housing. If if you consider yourself and, and knowledgeable she, about it, yeah, you sh- you should know the details about how AMI is calculated. Yeah, <laughs> right, exactly. Um, so you know, she she had a record of saying, uh, you know, uh, only affordable housing, and then not actually supporting it when it was on the table. Yeah. Um, and you know, Buffy Wick took controversial positions of supporting a more density around transit, increasing market rate. Um, and she took the controversial position of being no on Proposition 10. Um, and she was, you know, painted as this carpetbagger, corporate Democrat or whatever. And, and she just, it was a blowout. Well, you, she, Jovanka versus, versus uh, Buffy was considered, you know, kind of, you know, Bernie versus Hillary round two in the national press. And uh, I mean, I think that if you talk about non-housing issues, you get a much different thing than, I mean, Bernie versus Hillary obviously didn't have to talk a lot about housing, but uh, yeah, you, it's certainly you got the impression that Jovanka, uh, I who I think ran a very inspiring campaign from my opinion in a lot of ways. Her opinion on housing is like it's never good enough, and she's never going to actually approve any concrete implementation of any housing plan unless it's some ideal public housing, fully funded, which you know. I'd say hats off, but good luck funding it. You know, it's if you're not serious about figuring out how to do it, you can't make housing illegal in the meantime. Yeah, exactly. And um, I, I would say on other issues too, that's kind of emblematic of her approach to policy making. Um, so one of the other differences uh, was on single payer, um, and uh, you know, Devonka Beckles was supported by the nurses union, been very vocal about single payer in California. Um, and her answer to single pair was just like, I'm going to do it. Uh, her, I believe her answer on the questionnaire actually was like, I will build the movement to work with the governor to instate single pair. Um, and, you know, Buffy on the same questionnaire had like five paragraphs about uh, how she wanted to make a public option for Medi-Cal because she, she doesn't expect the Trump administration to fund single pair for California in the meantime. Which, I mean, I'll say this, I mean, it's, that is a plan, but you have to figure out the tax structure that will make it happen, and that is, you know, you can call California a, you know, a leftist state, a liberal, you know, liberal loony state, but, like, 
it is you know habitually anti-tax you know look at prop 13 which is ruling over all of us you know and in t- like yeah and we should be heartened by the defeats of proposition five and proposition six which were kind of you know the old anti-tax hydra rearing their ugly head and yeah. uh we slew those dragons I mean, I'll. So, you know. Yeah, I mean, Prop 6, I think the Bay Area ran a very solid, very solid awareness campaign of saying that gas taxes are good and important. And it's heartening that the sensible idea that gas taxes make economic sense won. Uh, Prop 5, I thought that was going to win. <laughs> I thought that was going to be easy. So that was shocking to me that it lost. Yeah, well, so the real turn. Uh, throughout the state were kind of ready to run that campaign and then they abandoned it and put all their resources behind no on 10. They kind of shared it too, saying two sides of the same coin, yes on five, no on 10. It's good for homeowners. (laughs) That was their campaign. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, we could get into how um, Michael Weinstein, the, the eccentric billionaire behind the AIDS Healthcare Foundation, was the worst thing to ever happen to rent control and tenants rights in California since the passage of the Costa-Hawkins Act, which uh, Proposition 10 sought to overturn and failed by 20%. I mean, he, he, set, he set everyone up. He was a dilettante who set up this campaign that had no chance of winning uh, and was also had holes in it mile-wide, as much as I think statewide rent stabilization is a necessary and good thing there were really bad stuff that he put in his proposition uh which like yeah, yeah it was not a clean repeal of costa hawkins yes uh there was a bill in the legislature last year that would do that and uh tenant advocates were really just gung-ho about the, the ballot measure and you know didn't want to deal with the legislative process which requires compromise, which requires back and forth. And they said, you know, no, we're going to do this uh, rent control ballot measure uh, that will enshrine rent control at the local level. Yeah. So um, and actually, Proposition I mean, 10's defeat not only sends the message that, uh, that tenant advocates are, are weak and not willing to actually play politics, um, but also that they're willing to throw places like Fresno and Bakersfield under the bus just to strengthen rent control in places that already have it, like San Francisco and Berkeley and Oakland. Yeah, and also this Sunnyvale, where I have, where I live, and where I am part of a tenants union. You know, it doesn't have rent stabilization, and uh, if we were to push for it, it would be easier if you have this, you know, kind of, you know, the rules of Costa Hawkins in place than if it's just no man's land. And, I mean, it does make it harder in every place that doesn't already have rent control. So, yes, L.A., San Jose, San Francisco would benefit from a clean repeal, but it creates this kind of, well, you have to make up your own rules, and it will be it will be a heavier lift in a lot of ways elsewhere. Um, and Right. And, you know, people pointed out that, uh, you know, Michael Weinstein sold like $10 million in this parliamentary campaign. Uh, there were four rent control measures locally in LA County that failed to get enough signatures. With 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 a wow. fraction of that funding, he could have had paid signature gatherers to at least get those on the ballot. That's something. And and the San Jose measure uh, for rent control failed this week too. And it's I wonder if it would have had a bit, bigger chance of succeeding if it wasn't open 
to uh, the fact that if it and Prop 10 passed, it would have actually had rent control on new construction, which anybody could tell you, you know, rent stabilization is good, but that's dumb. <laughs> and it's just, it was yeah. it was clueless. And I, I would say, if you don't understand that, I don't trust you to write your rent stabilization laws. Yeah. And I mean, um, I, I think what we're going to see is even more distrust and inability to talk uh, uh, between people who should be natural allies, which is tenants unions and uh, the construction trade. Yeah, I mean, tenants union. You know, tenants unions should be about, uh, you know, it's serving tenants' interests. And instead, we have this this idea that new apartments are against ten- tenants' interests, largely because we're seeing the fact that we're not we're not getting the positive gain, which is upzoning. Uh, areas that should be upzoned uh, without cost to existing tenants, because the you know right. Uh, but not. And I mean, I think, I think tenants and um, uh, building trades, you know, unionized construction workers are natural allies, and, and keeping them split uh, only helps landlords. Oh, I mean, the status quo, <laughs> the status quo very much helps landlords, and uh, yeah. I mean, the construction trade, obviously, if there's much construction, that's good news for construction workers. That's a very natural ally. Um, but, yeah. Uh, so we were talking about that. Uh, so, yeah, so talk about, like, the rift between kind of, uh, you know, being for, you know, taxes to pay for infrastructure, including homeless care, and how a rift is dividing between Yimbis and that on Prop C. Because Prop C was... You know, in a lot of people's minds, an unforced error by Yimbies that just made them look awful because of the advocacy of a few major voices. Yeah, so it was not, uh, you know, yes in my backyard group specifically opposing C. They they supported Prop C to raise gross receipts taxes and and fund homelessness services. Uh, it was kind of their. Um, I don't want to say they're standard bearers, but, um, you know, they're, they're legislative sponsors for a lot of their legislative priorities, uh, of the, uh, state center Scott Wiener and mayor London Breed who, who came out against it with no warning and really no clear reason. I mean, and state center Scott Wiener is like still like as of the past hour, bickering with people about his reasoning on Twitter, even though he's like, Hey, cool. It passed. But like, here's some tax wonkery about why I oppose this. Like, shut up. <laughs> and here's the thing too. I mean, you could say that a gross receipts tax, uh, a gross receipts tax, is not a great tax. It's, I think, it's not the worst tax. It's not as bad as the sales tax, but it's not a great tax. And to make the case, it's a very big tax. Should they worry about using the already large SF budget to more thoughtfully, you know? leverage their existing money well instead of just throwing more money at it and there's a good case but you don't win a lot of it's not good optics at the very least to say this homeless bill that already passed let me let me you know kind of have this very abstract wonky uh argument about why it's bad because it just makes you look like you hate the homeless and it's not smart it was the worst political optics and just like the worst example of not being in the room 
that I have ever seen in following local politics. Yeah, and I'll and just that's say that's not <laughs> Yeah, and I'll just say this. It's like is it a is it a non optimal tax? Yes. Is it a moral outrage what we're doing to the you know the landless and the desperate in our cities? And should we throw money at it if we have the luxury of doing so? I'd say it's very very privileged to say uh, let's nitpick <laughs> propsy uh, instead of you know, yeah uh, yeah. So- I mean you know uh, the city economist report that came out studying it with the dollars modeling or whatever. They, they projected that it, it, it might drag down job growth by about 800 jobs a year. And I think San Francisco is one of the only places in the world that is privileged enough to say like, oh, okay, you know what, like, we, we maybe don't need that. We should actually get our thousands of homeless people off the street and into permanent shelter instead. You know, that's a fair trade-off. Most cities do not have the luxury of being able to say that at all. Yeah, if, if you are talking about a place like Stockton, for example, if they were to make a gross receipts tax locally, I just think that it would be a non-starter because Stockton doesn't have the luxury of having the in- incredible economic luck or just agglomeration <laughs> effects that, that SF has. And SF, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's... Uh, I, and you can always... This is only be a measure for a certain number of years, and you can always worry about tightening up your belt at the appropriate time. It's just, it's yeah. I I just think that if you're trying to win allies, you can't be that, you know, head in the clouds, marble tower. Um, yeah. So as I was saying, that you know, the prevailing narrative is that everyone, uh, Wiener and Reed and Tory. Uh, almost everyone, I should say, not in District 10, uh, with new supervisor Shimon Walton, um, who had near unanimous support of um, the political elite. Um, but everyone in contentious district races um, with the Wiener and Breed machine support lost catastrophically and quite decisively. Yeah, I mean, it's so, yeah, Mayor Breed, uh, she won in the special election last June as mayor on what was, you know, largely branded as a pro housing uh, platform, which makes her, you said earlier. And also, crucially, as a rag to riches story from, uh, from public housing to the top of City Hall. Yeah, I mean it's 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 yeah. She's she's a black woman who grew up in public housing in San Francisco and is now the mayor. A lot of people are inspired by that, and I think that uh, and they I think a lot of people feel burned that uh, it's now saying that she yeah. yeah and 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 you talk about the EMB candidates in District Six. Sonia Trous has always been and Christine ver- Johnson and Christine Johnson. Yes, uh, both yeah very vocal in support of Prop C, but because of the top-down effect from uh, London Breed, they were absolutely marked uh, for what gain? Yeah, so uh, uh, newly elected supervisor Matt Haney um, he did have a stronger campaign overall. Uh, and so the, the general feeling is that he, he very well could have won regardless. But his double-digit margins uh, are just <laughs> unbelievable and uh, very much attributable to Prop C um, because Prop C, I think, activated a lot of uh, what I would call casual voters or, you know, people who don't pay attention to the inside baseball. But, you know, there's $5 million in asking from it from Salesforce 
Uh, and so anyone who is uh, unambiguously thumping for that um, is going to volunteer for the candidate and for the coalition that is uh, not split on it. Yeah. No, I mean, and it's it's worth mentioning that he won by 30%, but because of ranked choice voting, uh, it was 57% to 43 effectively because Sonia and Christine were clearly running a vote us one two campaign that uh you can probably assume most of their voters were doing that right but that's still a lot oh no i mean no that's still 14 percent. i mean that's still and, and, a, yeah and if you, and if you want to get more granular you still want in every precinct in that district. yeah no I'm, I'm just saying yeah he 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 definitely won big and it's, it's difficult to speculate about all the different variables uh but it, it, yeah, well, uh, one of the other ones is something that to me that I wasn't aware of. Um, you know, he served a lot of time in the school board, so he certainly had the name recognition of that and, you know, the experience of an elected official. Um, but uh, almost every school board candidate who has run for higher office in San Francisco has won. That's interesting. And, he, and he, had, he had a shiny Obama endorsement uh, for being on the school board, correct? Yes, that's right. A lot of people are making a big thing that he was he was the you know you know much like Buffy Wicks was in the, in the East Bay District for Assembly you know when you have an Obama endorsement in a year in which it is largely D's versus R's yeah that makes a big difference. So I mean SF it you know the 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 candidates that went most for housing were not were not successful so it's interesting to see how this will actually bear out because now you have the you know ostensibly you know ostensibly pro housing mayor uh and now yeah and now but, yeah. without the with, we're looking that the overton window has really on housing in the whole bay area and it's not going back that's I mean, and that's yeah. mostly thanks to the tireless advocacy of of, of, uh, of perennial targeted patrons sonia strauss and, and christine johnson yeah sonia strauss um you know friend, matt friend haney also had to say throughout the campaign that he supports housing and he supports more housing of all kinds and more density. Um, and he would not have been able to say that on a campaign four years ago. No, I mean, like, up until the last five years, the Calvin Welch ideology of, you know, all development is bad reigned, like, most places. And uh, it's, it's interesting how that's changing. Uh, I will say, though, that... Uh, you know, to to I guess draw back to my neck of the woods. Uh, you know, Palo Alto it's shrinking from seven to nine seats, and it's losing one of the only two outspoken, uh, you know, pro housing people. You know, so it used to be Adrian mm-hmm. Fine and Corey Wolbach were the only people who really would full throatedly speak in support of of housing. Yeah, um, and, and and Corey Wolbach, yeah. an incumbent, uh, lost in this recent election. Which leads you to believe: Is there a path forward for an exclusionary neighborhood like like Palo Alto City to ever build near enough housing? Because unlike you say, the Overton window has changed here in Palo Alto. If you build a you know essentially zero housing as Palo Alto does, it's still considered hyper growth. <laughs> so over here, it's still insane how different it is. Uh, from a real city like San Francisco, unlike a real city like like San Francisco or even a place like Berkeley, you know places like around here, uh, you have to say, are they actually fulfilling the state, you know, uh, you know, privilege that is spun down to them of zoning, 
is it actually serving the state interest or is it only serving the interest of a local gated community? And if so, can, you know, as you were saying earlier, the fact that the Overton window is shifting on what people can say and not, local control is still safe to say. But insofar as local control tends to mean exclusionary powers, is local control just going to be outed as like another word for segregation? I mean, I think it already has. Well, here people still say it. I mean, that's how 827, you know, the big vocal yeah, response to it is like, but, um, this is an attack on local control. Whereas, you know, when are people going to be as, you know, say, I can't say local control because people will think I'm an exclusionary zoning advocate because they are. Uh, I mean, the way I would put it is that local control for a place like Palo Alto is also local disenfranchisement for places like Stockton. Yeah. And and Stockton elects state legislators as well, and uh, you know they're going to come out for, with pitchforks for places like Palo Alto, and the state of California uh, within the next few years is going to be like a strict parent taking candy away from the uh, from the bratty older sibling who's hoarding all the Halloween candy. I mean, in, in your in your mind, is it? reasonable to think it's on the table that the state of California could disincorporate cities like Atherton and Palo Alto? Um, <laughs> or forced annexation, as it were? Because uh, on it, forced annexation was not off the table decades ago. I think people are just very content that it's not happening. And I'd say if a place like Atherton and Palo Alto doesn't grow up and learn to you know, play well with others... Like, why shouldn't it expect force annexation to be on the table? Um, well, I think the approach for now, like, I think people see it as more politically feasible, uh, just in the amount of paperwork it was to create, um, to take power away from those cities so that, you know, being incorporated as a city doesn't mean that you get to regulate how many people can live there. Yeah. Uh, I think and I mean, if you're concerned about the effects versus like the the legalese of what incorporating a city means, um, then that's really what you want to get after is yeah. that power. Sure. No, I mean, I think that's a more targeted approach, certainly. But uh, I, I think that yeah, it, it's it, in a lot of ways, it's I mean, even that is treated as something which is not a realistic thing when, you know, zoning didn't exist 100 years ago. I mean, Palo Alto has been incorporated much longer than they had zoning powers, and they can go back to not having zoning powers again. Um, so, I don't know. I mean, it's 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 the Overton window. I'd be curious to see how much that can shift, uh, if that's actually on the, on the cards or not. Yeah, and I mean, as, I think as you see the Metropolitan Transportation Commission, which is like the kind of only quasi-governmental regional body that is dealing with these issues. I mean, um, as it kind of tries to deal with the fragmentation of housing and transportation as infrastructure, um, I think you will see that Overton windows start to shift at the regional and state level. Um, and and um, places like Palo Alto, where um, uh, you know greedy feudalist leaders like Lydia Koo can't grow up, um, they just won't have the decision-making power about that. <laughs> I am I'm so disappointed that Lydia Koo knows where there's plentiful affordable housing and she won't tell the rest of us. She, it's just yeah. it's it's so disappointing but you, you need you need a superb realtor like her. 
Uh, yeah, I mean, you got to subscribe to your newsletter or something. I don't know. Yeah, so uh, why don't you wrap up and tell, tell us more about uh, your own podcast, but also make, make your way down here sometime uh, because, boy, yeah. I don't know where, like, they must not have cell phone antennas in the in the East Bay. It's 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 big. no uh think they call cancer. Yeah, that's that's too bad because yeah, it's 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 been it's been cancer for our listeners. Uh yes. Yeah, so, yeah, so I'm I'm the editor in chief of the Gay City Beacon in San Francisco. Um and if you want to hear our hour long podcast going over the election results, um the which is um just me saying a lot of what I just said, plus someone disagreeing with me about everything. Uh, you go to baycitybeacon.com and um, go to our SoundCloud link or whatever, and uh, or you you, you could you could yeah. just search for uh, Bay uh, Bay City Fogcast and you'll you'll find your it's not a podcast yeah go to a podcast on SoundCloud or iTunes or wherever you get your podcasting yeah it's 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 a it's a concept podcast because it's it's the Fogcast and you have microphones that sound like you're you know inaudible in a big field a of fog. fog yeah so it's 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 very high concept lovely show uh well it's to, it's to cover all the coughing from our our smoking and yeah um consumption of illegal substances if, if it makes you feel any better uh you sound better on your podcast than you do over the phone on this show so it does make me feel better thank you mark you're very welcome uh but uh, thank you for uh, Diego, uh, Diego Aguilar Conval, yeah. for uh, for being on for this hour of uh, the Henry George program. Um, yeah, thanks for having me. Have a good one. <laughs> yeah, this has been the Henry George program. You can find this episode and previous programs the website seethecat.org. This is a presentation of Casey Shoe Stanford. 